0: reality and the world's view of power and position. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in Mark ten thirty-five to 45, he pointed out that position in his kingdom is based on servanthood. In essence, the path up is the path down. He also said that those charged with responsibility those charged with responsibility are called to sacrificially serve those who are under their responsibility. I think it's interesting in our language, it's even difficult to talk about this biblical concept. If you think about our culture, the concept of up and down in terms of authority and position. If you advance your career, where are you going? You're going up. If you fall on hard times, you're going down. I had a friend, a good friend, who was promoted to manager at Pico, and after about six weeks, uh, he couldn't take it anymore and uh, he said he wanted to go back to being a, a senior engineer and people were baffled because this was a step down the concept of position authority and all this up and down is so deeply embedded in us that I think it's hard to get past it and yet we must if we're going to understand authority, position, and leadership in the kingdom of God. In the same way that the disciples were distracted by the world's belief that authority is a means for self-advancement, we often misunderstand other gifts and responsibilities given to us by the Lord. This morning, we're going to look at spiritual gifts, God's gifts to the church of gifted people and roles established within the church. We'll start with spiritual gifts. Now, a short, simple definition of a spiritual gift is uh, supernatural enablement for ministry. These gifts are usually discovered in the context of ministry, and, and typically those who minister with us will identify the gifts we have rather than us seeing our gift. Now, that said, a brother reminded me this morning to be certain to say that we don't have to wait to serve until we know what our spiritual gift is. Our spiritual gift is discovered in the context of serving. Go serve. Go minister. Serve in the church. Serve in the community. Your spiritual gift will become apparent. And once it does, then your efforts can be directed appropriately. When I was at uh, at Bible College, I was part of a, uh, for a very short, uh, about one semester, I was part of a street evangelism team. And we used to, the, the school was down at 18th and Arch at that time, and uh, me and another fellow whose name was Dan uh, used to go to the city city hall concourse, whatever you call the the big open subway thing that's that's underneath City Hall there where all the trolleys and the trains come in and everything. And we used to go down there for a couple hours every week and just do, you know, what's typically known as cold turkey evangelism, walk up to people, see if they had an interest in, spirit, in spiritual things, sit down, talk to them, and uh, if they were interested, explain the gospel of Christ to them. Uh, on a on a typical two-hour stretch, if it was a very 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 good day, I would have one conversation. Across the, I think it was thirteen weeks that we did this, I saw one profession of faith. Dan was in the same concourse. He had the same target population. Obviously, wasn't talking to the same exact people as I was. Uh, he would typically have three or four conversations every two hours. And at the end of the 13 weeks, he had seen 22 professions of faith. Now, Dan would be the first one to say that he was, would be very, very surprised if he saw all 22 of those people uh, when he got to glory. But he had 22 professions of faith, and he had, <coughs> Excuse me. And he had several people that after he talked to them, he gave them, they, he gave them his phone number, and they contacted him for more information about growing in Christ. Dan had the gift of evangelism. I'm not, I don't stop doing evangelism because I don't. I continue to do it. But Dan went on to prioritize evangelism as a ministry that he was involved in. So spiritual gifts matter and uh, we want to talk a little bit about a, a good biblical understanding of them. There's a passage that has a, it's a pretty good summary on spiritual gifts. It's uh, Romans 12, verses 3 to 8. We're going to look at two passages today. Uh, both of them are chapter 12. One of them is in Romans, and the other one is 1 Corinthians. So if you need to remember that, just remember chapter 12, Romans and 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at Romans first, verses 3 through 8. Now, in both of these passages, Paul identifies, and and what we're going to focus on is uh, some of the the dangers and mistakes that are inherent in understanding the role that spiritual gifts play in our lives and in the ministry of the church. In verse 3, Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself in sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. I don't know about you, but with me, balance is always a struggle in my life. Uh, I I, I tend to either be on this extreme or or that extreme. There's two extremes here in this passage. Um, Paul says, uh, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Now, that's just straight out. In other words, don't be proud about your gift. Don't be proud that God has gifted you with a spiritual gift. But there's another danger, and that is uh, there are some of us, and and, and I I fall into this on occasion, that are like, woe is me. Uh, Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to eat all worms. And this isn't right either, because Paul says, rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to you. You see, we shouldn't run ourselves down, and we shouldn't run ourselves up. We should see ourselves as God sees us, precious, priceless, and completely prepared to play play a critical role in the body of Christ. In verses 4 and 5, he has an illustration and a truth. As we all have bodies with many different parts that are interdependent and all necessary for the functioning of the body, likewise we are all different parts of the body of Christ, interdependent, each depending on all the others. When I was in Haiti, uh, we didn't have electricity at night. And one night I I woke up from a deep sleep uh, with a very great need, And uh, I I jumped out of bed and ran through the dark room uh, to where I needed to get to. And unfortunately, either I forgot the layout of my bedroom uh, or somebody moved the furniture because I slammed, and I mean slammed, with my whole heart, my right foot into a chair leg. My entire life, was consumed with the second toe from the right on my right foot. There was no other part of my body that mattered. None at all. To this day, that toe is crooked. Just as a reminder that I neglected to take care of it by watching where I was going. Now, the interesting thing is, It didn't stop hurting right away, although it eventually got to where I didn't see stars anymore. But for weeks afterwards, I walked funny because of a toe that's that long. And eventually, my hip and my knee started to hurt because I walked funny because of a toe that was that long the same thing is true in the body of christ there are no little insignificant parts we need to take care of all of them and when a part is hurt it impacts the entire body when a part can't do its res- can't fulfill its responsibilities can't do its job so to speak the rest of the body suffers because it counts on that part to play its role. In verses 6 through 8, Paul lists some gifts. It's not a complete list, and emphasizes that what matters is not the gift we have, but the spirit in which we employ our gift. He says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to us, If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. And if it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. It's significant that the verses that follow this passage on spiritual gifts teach on love, mutual submission, forgiveness, seeking the best for others and other expressions of the spirit-filled life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 through 31, Paul goes into more depth on the topic of spiritual gifts. I am not going to read these passages, so please turn to them in the pew Bible. I'm sorry, I don't have the number or the page number for you. In verses 4 through 11, we see that all spiritual gifts come from God, Who distributes them as he chooses for the benefit of his people and for his glory. We see that these gifts are an expression of the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that there is variety in the gifts given and that all the gifts are given for the common good. It's difficult to find a passage that more clearly demonstrates unity and diversity than verses 4 through 6. verses 12 through 14 the theme is unity the theme of unity and diversity in diversity continues as paul points out that although we come from different backgrounds racially economically socially etc we are all equal in christ this truth is further developed in galatians chapter 3 verse 28 in verses 15 through 31 we see the differing functions differing giftedness within the body is necessary for the body to function well. We see that there is no better gift and no lesser gift. There are simply gifts, some different. Each member of the body needs the other members. No one is complete without the others. So to summarize, God has given each of us a gift or gifts so that we can serve the body of Christ and glorify our God. Our gifts are given for the benefit of others. The Corinthians erred by believing that gifts could grant position within the body. We see that our gifts do not increase or decrease our value to God or the value that we have to the body in which we serve. There's tremendous diversity in gifts, but complete unity and equality within the body. For the body to function well as intended and designed, everyone must exercise the gift entrusted to them. It's important that every believer has at least a basic understanding of spiritual gifts, since every believer has one and all are needed for the body to function well. When I look out on a congregation this size, and uh, I, I see potential. I see what can be. That is what I long for, for Grace Chapel. But that can be involves each and every one of us playing the role that we're called to play within the body of Christ. Uh, Again, when we were in Haiti, I don't know if Harris is here today or not, but he typically keeps track of how many Haiti stories I tell. He's going to have a banner day today. Uh, When we were in Haiti... At uh, at one point, uh, a mob sought to kill one of the the local lay pastors, and um, through divine provision, uh, a bunch of Belgian peacekeepers happened to drive by as this was going on, and 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 they they grabbed them and threw them in their truck, and they drove to the hospital. I should send them a thank you note. Uh, they drove to the hospital and they rushed in and they went to an inside courtyard that was easily defensible and they barricaded themselves in there. The mob promptly tore the gates off the hospital and rushed in to, uh, to, to get at this lay pastor uh, that, that they wanted to, to kill. And there was a standoff because the, the Belgians had chosen their position well and, uh, and so they were able to, uh, to hold off the mob. But it was a complete stalemate. And so the Belgians called the U.S. Special Forces Unit uh, that was stationed about five miles down the road. In about 15 minutes, a Humvee pulled up. Two guys got out. They knew five words of Crail, it's over, go home. They ran into the mob shouting, it's over, go home, and the mob dispersed everybody went home. The Belgians came out. One of the special forces told me later on uh, the problem the Belgians had was they all spoke French and so they could talk to the people, whereas the special forces couldn't, and so they had to use body language. You guys are a little slow. (laughs) The point there is that two put to flight over 100. The point is that uh, two men who were trained and committed and used all the skills that they had were able to accomplish what had been impossible for a larger group of men. That was the best picture I could think of as distasteful as Perhaps some of you think it is, Um, and it does have its downside. But that's the best picture that I can think of, of the power that resides within a church, gifted by God, well-led, and zealous to do his will. There's no lack of prophecies in the Old Testament about how when God restores Israel as a nation to their place, he says, two of you will put to flight 10,000. That is the power of spiritual gifts. It's also a blessing to live in the midst of people who have spiritual gifts and who exercise their spiritual gifts. Um, I, I have a rather long summary here of of people that I know who have exercised their gifts in my life, but unfortunately they won't get to be embarrassed today other than uh, the prayer team. We have a prayer team that meets up here after the service uh, every week. Uh, Sometimes I forget to announce that you can come up here and they'll pray for you. It's Mallory and Carissa and uh, a couple other members. And uh, one day I, I, I was over there to meet people who, uh, who might come up for prayer and, and to pray with them. And uh, n- nobody felt the need of that ministry at that time, which is okay. Okay, no judgment there. Um, but the prayer team was so zealous to pray that they turned to me and they said, okay, Paul, how can we pray for you? And so I shared with them, you know, some of the struggles that I face and some of the ways that I feel that I failed the Lord ways that I feel that my spiritual life could could be, you know, improved or even dramatically improved, and they prayed for me. And you know what? A burden was lifted. As people that have the spiritual gift of faith, when they pray, things happen. We need to be around people like that. We need to give people like that the opportunity to serve us, to minister to us. Now, in addition to the spiritual gifts that we we receive, that the Lord gives each of us, uh, God also gives gifted people to his church. Uh, The best passage to look at this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Now, again, note that the context of this passage is... uh, that this passage is preceded by an exhortation to unity, humility, and love, as 1 Corinthians 12 was followed by a chapter on love. In this passage, we see that not only has God given each of us gifts, but he has also given his church gifts of gifted people. In verse 11, he says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, there's broad agreement among commentators that this refers to church planting situations. There is less agreement on whether this passage refers specifically to the first century or whether this practice of God giving gifted people to his church uh, continues today. For our purposes, we don't need a definitive answer to that question. It's enough that we recognize that these are gifted people given to the church, and they're not offices established within the church. Finally, many evangelical commentators agree that the term translated in the NIV, pastors and teachers, is most clearly expressed as pastor-teacher, since the Greek grammar indicates that both words refer to the same person. Uh, It talks about a, a person gifted in the area of shepherding and teaching. God has given his church gifted people who serve as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers in church planting situations. These are not offices within the church, but people gifted to the church. I hope we're moving towards a biblical understanding of authority and leadership in the local church. We know that position, greatness, perhaps called self-advancement, within the church doesn't come through authority, leadership, spiritual gifts, or involvement in any particular ministry. We've seen that God entrusts authority to the church and has designated roles, not people, to exercise this authority. Now we want to look at the roles or offices established within the local church. First question we need to answer is, is what is a role, a position in office? Now, I realize that there are technical differences between these. I, I actually read management stuff about this to, to try to figure out how I should talk about it. And I came to the conclusion that, uh, although some of you are management people who probably know all this stuff, Most of you have been blessed from all the confusion that you find in those articles, and so we'll just use the words interchangeably. I think the principle we're talking about here can be better illustrated than defined. If you're counting, this is the third. When we were in Haiti, or while while we were in Haiti, Bill Clinton, as then president of the U.S., Uh, visited Haiti. And through a set of circumstances that I don't know, uh, a bunch of the MAF pilots, uh, Missionary Aviation Fellowship pilots, who uh, served in Haiti ended up spending a fair amount of time with the helicopter pilots that furried uh, President Clinton uh, around during his visit. This is... What they said. Now there was there was at least one pilot who was not a big fan of President Clinton, and uh, he didn't think much of him as a man. Uh, he didn't appreciate his politics. He appreciated even less his moral conduct. Interestingly enough, when President uh, when when the president, at least in this instance. Uh, I, I don't know what their, their practice is, so I, I don't want to phrase it that way. But in this instance, they had four helicopters involved in ferrying President Clinton around. Three of them were little helicopters. I don't know what kind of little helicopters. They were little helicopters. And uh, the president would be in one of them, and, and when they took off, they would do a shell game so that it was difficult to tell which of the helicopters the president was actually in. And then there was a fourth helicopter, and this was a big helicopter. The fellow who didn't particularly appreciate President Clinton, his job was to fly the big helicopter. And his job was to stay in between the ground and the three small helicopters because missiles that they shoot at helicopters look for a heat signature and the more heat you have the missile will track that object and so his job was to basically be a sitting duck to draw fire in the event that somebody fired a missile at President Clinton's helicopter Now the MAF and this is the part that, that you need to remember. The MAF pilot who related this story told me, he said, I looked at him and I said, well, you don't like the man. How in the world do you get in there, strap in, take your helicopter up and do your job? And he said, I don't protect the man. I protect the presidency. That's the difference that we're talking about here when we talk about a role or an office. Where people fill roles and offices, that is true. But the power is not invested in the person. It is invested in the role, the office, the position. That's where the authority, the responsibility, which we know are tied together, that's where they lie. Now, the scripture defines two roles within the church, elders and deacons. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every town. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul lists the qualifications for elders, for choosing elders. There are a number of English terms used interchangeably with elder. They include pastor, shepherd, overseer, and bishop there are three Greek words variously translated and used interchangeably at times. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and Acts chapter 20 are examples where all three Greek terms are used to refer to the same group of people. Now, for the purposes of... We're going to talk about deacons in a second, but for the purposes of this study, we're more interested uh, in the role of elders. And next week, we're going to spend... Uh, the entire message fleshing out uh, the the little snapshot that I just gave you. Deacons, the second role that we see established within the church in the New Testament. Deacons are mentioned multiple times in the New Testament. The role initially appears in, in the resolution of a dispute in the early days of the church. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, the 12 referring to the 12 apostles created the role of deacon to assist them in caring for the physical needs of the flock oversight of the physical needs of the flock has been the traditional role of deacons throughout church history excuse me paul gives timothy the qualifications for a deacon in 1st timothy chapter 3 verses 16 or verses 8 through 13 since Timothy received qualifications for deacons, I'm assuming that he was responsible to appoint them. In New Testament times, it appears that the word translated deacon may have had a broader scope than simply caring for physical needs. There is a principle that runs through all that we have studied last week and this week. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. There's a principle which runs through all that we have discussed last week and this week. It's a foundational principle in the coming kingdom of God which we can apply to our day-to-day lives right now. It will bring a greater degree of simplicity to our lives and will dramatically impact the world around us. The principle was clearly stated... The principle was clearly stated in Mark chapter 10 towards the end. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's pretty straightforward and it goes 180 degrees against the the culture that we live in. So I'd like you to consider the following questions. What impact would we see in our worlds, the places we live day by day, if we actively and consciously sought to be servants, seeking the best for those around us? Now, admittedly, again, there's a question of balance here. We have a misconception, many of us may have a misconception of what a servant is. A servant is not a doormat. When we're talking about servanthood here, we're we're talking about not giving people their way, but giving people what is best for them. When I seek what is best for my grandson, even though he screams... Excuse me, he doesn't scream. He's a perfect grandchild. (laughs) But were he to scream, because he wanted a chocolate bar, a cheese stick, a whatever, and I knew that it wasn't good for him, I serve him by telling him no. When my boss at work asks me a question, and I know the answer is going to displease him. And I tell him the truth because he needs to hear the truth on the particular issue. I serve him. When we look at a friend's life and we realize that because they have failed to apply God's truth to their day-to-day existence and we keep quiet... We are not showing love and acceptance. We are showing the opposite of love, which is not caring about them. When we speak up and we speak the truth in love, then we are serving them. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 brings an element of balance to this. Don't look out for your own in- interests. They have a place but also look out for the interests of others. What impact would we have in our world if we consciously sought to speak encouraging but true words to family, co-workers, and neighbors? Do you know that there's actual secular studies done where they have talked about how they have done studies and they have seen that, that people who share encouraging words with coworkers? eventually become opinion makers in the workplace? Wow, they just discovered God's truth. And they proved it scientifically. Can you imagine if we were known as encouraging people? Now, there's times when you have to say things that aren't encouraging, but think about it this week. Make it a goal that you will say one encouraging thing to every neighbor you meet, to every person you meet in the workplace, and to each your family members on a given day. Just one. Just one thing. And and, and telling the guy that you can't stand at work, well, I'm glad you're not dead. That doesn't count as encouragement. Okay? (laughs) What impact would it have if we listened intelligently to those who spoke to us and we shared their joy and pain. Other secular studies have shown that when you listen to people, they come to respect you. Not let the words bounce off your eardrums while you're thinking about the email you're going to write or how you're going to answer them and tell a better story than the one that they're telling. But when you really listen to people, You listen interactively. You listen to experience their life. That will build a deeper relationship between you and whoever you are listening to. And here's number four. In Haiti, as part of cold turkey evangelism, I would ask people, sometimes, depending on the person, but sometimes I would ask them, when they failed to see the value of Christianity, I, I would I would oftentimes ask them who they wanted for a neighbor. Would they rather have a Christian for a neighbor or a, a, a really, there's really no good way to translate this, but a, 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 just a really solid voodooist. With only one exception, and I don't think he was being honest with me. I, I think he was just, you know, trying to play the game with me. But with only one exception, every time people chose to live next door to a Christian. Now, the contrast there, which I I can't explain to you, is an extremely stark contrast. And so it makes it easy to see the advantages of Christianity perhaps more because of the disadvantages of the other side. But if we interact with people, if we listen to share their joy and their pain, if we encourage in the words that we speak to them and we serve them in the way that we relate to them, we begin to express this foundational principle of the coming kingdom of God and give them a foretaste of what life in that kingdom, which is the life God intended for us, would be like. I have to believe that if we do that successfully, they're going to break the doors of this church down to get into it. They're going to wake us up in the middle of the night to learn more about God's word. And our world is going to be changed. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you very much for the spiritual gifts that you've given to us for the enablement that they give us to change the world around us. Thank you for the opportunities we have every day to make a difference for you, to show people what life in your kingdom is like. Thank you, Father, that you've told us flat out that the way up is the way down. Help us to wrap our heads and our hearts around that principle and to see it change our lives and change the lives of those we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. We have some special instrumentalists here we're just going to give a few seconds for.